Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. We'd like to welcome everybody back to the Football's Family Podcast. And for episode 101, I've got uh, – it's it's an honor of mine personally to let this uh, guest introduce himself and talk about his football uh, history and his football – his love of football. So would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Bill Curry, and um, I grew up in College Park, Georgia. I uh, I had two goals in life when I was 12 years old. Number one was to marry the beautiful Carolyn Newton, who was uh, the best looking woman I had ever seen. And uh, also happened to be in my fourth grade class, fifth grade, sixth grade, all the way through high school. (laughs) Would not speak to me for six years because she was taller than me and I was always in trouble. And my other goal was to pitch for the New York Yankees. What I did not want to do is to play football. I didn't watch football. I didn't like football. I didn't understand why anybody would want to do anything that ridiculous until I got to high school, which we we had a strange system in College Park. Senior high school was grades 8 through 12. So it was five years in one building with one group of young people. Um, And if you wanted to get a date in College Park, you had to be on the football team. So I grudgingly uh, went down to the locker room and got those ridiculous things, pads, helmets, all that that we put on our bodies and uh, went out on the field and began to uh, do that ridiculous thing (laughs) that we we do in the sport of football. Uh, Meanwhile, my passion continued to be uh, baseball and uh, Only one thing kept me out of the majors in baseball, talent. So (laughs) that that became clear that that wasn't going to work. On my other life goal, uh, that Miss Carolyn Newton has been my wife now for 60 years. So that that part worked out beautifully. I think God had a hand in that. Uh, I really honestly do. I think he realized that I needed somebody to look out for me. And that's what this gracious, brilliant woman has done all this time. The football thing honestly had to grow on me. Um, I didn't care a thing about collisions. (laughs) My uh, uh, coach brought us over one day. We were a small school, and there were only 11 new players coming out for the squad. And uh, and the assistant coach took us aside to uh, assign positions, the obvious thing that had to happen. After they had watched us in calisthenics and our very beginning of that blocking and tackling and some of those kinds of things, which, as I've mentioned, I didn't have a proclivity for that. I didn't want to do those things much. So I was not a standout by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, naturally, all the good positions went to 
uh, the better athletes. So Tommy got to be the quarterback and Richard got to be the fullback because Tommy could throw the ball and Richard was big and fast. And finally, uh, the, the uh, assistant coach, Jesse Shaddix, had assigned 10 players to all the good positions. And there was only one position left and only one short, chubby, future New York Yankee standing over there picking my nose. I didn't care what he did with me. Uh, there was only one position left that nobody wanted to play, and, and I was the only player left. So Coach Shattuck said this brilliant thing. Well, Bill, I guess you're going to be the center since there was no other person to fill that position. I thought that was logical. And I thought, no kidding, Shattuck. Actually, I thought something else. I was a 12-year-old male, but I can't say it on the air here. Uh, so I trudged over to the one position that nobody wanted to play and um, lined up there. And then Coach Shattuck said another brilliant thing. Well, Bill, I guess you're going to have to learn to hike that ball. Well, no kidding, Coach Shattuck. I guess so. And you mean I've got to take this very hard oblate spheroid inflated to 13 pounds per square inch pressure. And I've got to pull it up between my legs. And, and Tommy's going to put his hands where? I don't want anybody putting their hands there on me. I don't want to hike a hard football in that region. What if Tommy moves his hands early? <laughs> I thought about all those things. I did not want to do that. Worst thing that could have happened for short, fat, lazy Bill Curry, right? Wrong. Four years later at Georgia Tech, I learned to hike that ball to Billy Lothridge, who was a candidate. He was a, he was a runner-up for the Heisman Trophy to Roger Staubach. In the Senior Bowl, after my college career at Georgia Tech, I learned to hike that ball to Joe Willie Namath. And in various games and on various teams from that point forward, I learned to hike that ball to Roger Staubach, John Hewitt, Bob Timberlake, Craig Morton, Bart Starr, Zeke Bratkowski, Johnny Unitas, Earl Morrill, and many, many other of the greatest leader slash athletes in the history of the sport of football. I had the privilege of conveying the football to those great, great men and being their personal protector for an entire career. So that which appears to be the worst thing that can happen for us may be the best thing that could happen if we just grit our teeth and learn to do our best at it. And I had no choice. I mean, I was stuck. All my buddies were watching and I didn't want to fail, even though I was not happy about my position. I could have moaned and complained and quit, which I had done before. Uh, but uh, in this case, I decided to stay, and my life was changed by the sport of football. And in time, I learned to love the competitive zeal and the, the absolute commitment that's required from that very demanding sport because it requires every ounce of your guts, every ounce of your brains, every ounce of your energy, 
every ounce of your preparation, every single play. And I ended up playing for 20 years, if you count high school, college, and in the NFL. So I learned to love that which I thought I would detest. And uh, I I was taught many lessons, uh, some by human beings, but I think more lessons uh, in God's wisdom, lessons that I needed to learn. And and to this day, I, I still learn from watching a group of people come together and try to do something that's almost impossible. If you think about football, really, it's 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 so hard to do any of the things you have to do. It's almost impossible. Ask that of your body over and over and over. And yet a group of people decide to do that. And the really good ones. And here's the best part of all. The really great teams. If you get a chance to be on a great team, and I had that privilege just a few times. The reason they're great may be because they have the best players. Maybe. Usually not. Usually the teams that win the Super Bowl or the national championship and or the state championship usually don't have the best players. What they have is a group of human beings who love each other. Because when, when what football demands of you in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter when you're playing in your 23rd consecutive game and you haven't missed a play, and it's 105 degrees, and you've lost 14 pounds to dehydration, and you've just broken your finger again, and your nose is bleeding, you're not thinking about getting another Super Bowl ring. You're not thinking about trying to win the game. All you can think about is quitting. I quit. I'm going to go suck on the auction. I'm dying out here. It doesn't matter that you got 80 yards to go and you're four points behind. You got to have a touchdown. That doesn't matter. I don't care about winning the game. I'm just dying here. And then you look at your teammate and you realize I cannot let him down. I cannot let him down. That's what the great teams have. And so we don't let each other down. So at the end of that drive, at the end of that interminable two-minute drill, uh, win or lose, and usually you win when you have that kind of commitment to each other. You can look each other in the eye and you can embrace and you can know on this day we did the best that we could do with what God gave us. And that's a rare feeling these days in this very divided nation we live in. So there's a lot of bad stuff about football, and we all know mostly what it is, but there's there's some wonderful stuff. And to me, that's the best part of all. Loyalty and love for your teammate. Regardless, you see, in that moment, it doesn't matter what color his skin is. It doesn't matter what church he goes to. It doesn't matter how he voted in the last election. It matters. That's my teammate, and I cannot let him down. You, um, well, I think. Uh, okay. okay, you you hit kind of hard with with uh, gritting your teeth and bearing through it. And I'm not going to go into any personal stuff, but my family and I have experienced tragedy last year that no no other parent needs to have. Um, what you just told me 
encouraged me. It was a, it's been a very bad day, Mr. Bill. It's been a very bad couple of days. My son died. Well, I'll just give you a little background. My son died a year ago, um, Thursday. And a year ago yesterday, we buried him. Uh, and it's just kind of hard. So what you told me right there, just uh, it hit home. It hit home. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Well, it, I, we wouldn't have made it without our church family and without our our family. So when you talk about family, um, I know you had that with your with with Green Bay, with Baltimore. Uh, with Georgia Tech, I know you had that, and you probably still have a lot of those relationships right now, don't you? Yes, but I'm so sorry about your son. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, but do have some questions for you. I want to kind of get onto a better, but I, I want to thank you. Uh, you don't have, I guess you now know your words mean a lot more than what you what you think they do. Thank you for that. Thank you. I do have some questions for you, and and uh, just because I'm. And uh, a football nerd is probably the best way to put it. You played on two, uh, well, actually three of the best teams that I've that I could hear uh, read about in, in in NFL history with the Packers and the Colts. But when when I was when I was eighteen years old, nineteen years old, I went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I was reading on. I read it before, but I was reading on the Ice Bowl. Can you tell me some stories about the ice ball? Well, it's a, people assume that I played in the ice bowl, but I did not. What I did do, well, me, my, it was my privilege. <clears throat> Coach Lombardi, I played in Green Bay for the Packers in 1965, which was the last year before the leagues merged, and we were the we were the National Football League champions that year. We beat Cleveland the Cleveland Browns in the championship game. I was a rookie. In 1966, I was the starting center in what came to be known as Super Bowl One. That's not what they called it at the time, but that's what it was. It was the leagues had merged, and we played against the Kansas City ah. Chiefs, and that was Super Bowl One. The next year is when the Ice Bowl occurred. 1967, yes, you're right. 67 season. Coach Lombardi had put me on the expansion list to be claimed. I was claimed by the, the new team, which was the New Orleans Saints, which to me was a horrible, horrible thing to happen. And I flew into a, a rage of uh, self-pity, and it was nobody's fault but my own. I just wasn't as good as those other guys on that team. But, but I uh, – the Saints were so excited about me, they immediately traded me to the Baltimore Colts, <laughs> where I had the incredible privilege of playing for Coach Don Shula. Yes, you did. So played for Bobby Dodd, Vince Lombardi, and Don Shula. I don't know that there's anybody that had the privilege of being with that many. Well, okay. Great let, let, me, let me rephrase uh, here, here, that. Let, yeah. me, let me point out something yeah. about, about that Colt team. That was 1967. Yes. Our record was 11, 1, and 2. We did not make the playoffs. We beat the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys that year, and we had a better record than both of those teams. But they were in the playoffs, and they played in the ice bowl, and we sat home and watched. 
was strange the, scheduling system of the NFL at that time. There were no wild cards. That, okay. Was it because they wanted their divisions? Well, we tied uh, with uh, the Rams for the division we were in. And so they were and they were declared the winners. And they played the Packers in the first playoff game. The Packers beat them, even though the Packers didn't have as good a record. So the Packers ended up playing the Cowboys. It was really bizarre. And then that game became really uh, one of the two or three most famous games of all time, known as the Ice Bowl. And I'm asked about it a lot, but I didn't play in it. Do you? Well, well, I, yeah, I'm seeing that. And I had the dates wrong. I apologize on that. I had the dates wrong on that. I, I knew. Anyway, do you have any uh, you had friends on the Packers? Did they tell you anything about playing in that game? Yeah, uh, a lot of the guys. Um, Bart Starr essentially adopted me the day I showed up for the Green Bay Packers and um, never left my side till the day he died. And so um, he, his, his whole thing, I, I thought that the ball handling would, would have been a real problem. Because I had practiced on that field in similar weather conditions. I'll never forget uh, asking Ray Nitschke, our middle linebacker, my rookie year, we didn't have an indoor facility. So when it was 10 below zero, we just went outside and practiced. And uh, so we would practice on Lambeau Field. Um, and I remember it's the only time in my life I stood in a place and I framed the thought in my mind, I am going to die. <laughs> I can't, I can't make my fingers or my legs, nothing will move. And so I said to Ray Nitschke, how long are we going to be out here? And he, he points over uh, off to our my left and he says, till he gets cold. Well, I had never seen a snowmobile suit, but I look over there and Coach Lombardi had a snowmobile suit on, so he wasn't going to get cold. But the rest of us just had on a little sweatshirt and our, and our football gear. So I've been out on that field in icy conditions, and um, it, 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 I couldn't stand up. I, I would slip and fall down. And that is what was most – that was most on Bart Starr's mind. I know this, that and his backs were slipping and falling when he was trying to hand the ball off on that very famous drive. Uh, yeah. probably one of the better drives in the history of the NFL. And it was engineered by Bart. There were no plays sent in from the bench in those days. Bart Starr called every play. Johnny Unitas called every play. Uh, so Bart engineered that thing, made a couple of really incredible calls, uh, one of which has been memorialized, and we can talk about it if you want to. But what was on his mind and what everybody was worried about was the pudding. And sure enough, Donnie Anderson slipped a couple of times and couldn't get traction to go ahead just for a straight dive as they got down close to the goal line. And that's why Bart decided he called the running play but did not hand the ball off. He ran the sneak because he asked Jerry Kramer, can you get your footing well enough, enough so that you can come off the ball? and get some movement so I can get in the end zone. And Jerry said he thought he could. And um, 
So that's what they did. And sure enough, Bart just took the snap and lunged in, in that very Martin. famous dive. Yeah, had his hands up. <laughs> to win the game. No, Chuck Bersine had his hands up because he didn't want the – Yeah, he, did, he didn't want to be pushing, yeah. If that was illegal. It's legal now to push the back. But if, if Chuck had been perceived to be pushing, uh, and that's I guess that goes with being smart enough. Chuck has a degree from Yale. Oh, there you so. go. You you did play – now, I know this for a fact. You did play in what was then World Championship, the first one, AFL-NFL or NFL-AFL. Um, and you played – you also played in Super Bowl five. Now, I don't know if you want to talk about three, but we can talk about one. <laughs> now, Super Bowl, I, it, Super if Bowl I remember three. correctly – on the America's game, uh, I don't think any one of y'all wanted to talk about three. Well, we pouted about it for about 50 years, uh, but we got beat. If you turn the ball over against a decent team, you're going to lose. That's what we did. You got to We would like for people to remember this, and very few people do, but that Baltimore Colt team was 15 and one. The one game we lost was to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. We had just gone to Cleveland in the NFL championship and beat them 34 to nothing. And then we go down and didn't perform well offensively against the Jets. Um, Beating beating a Paul Brown team who I believe just came out from, what was it, the AAFL? And winning a, a, a all American conference or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean they won, Blanton, won two or by three. By that time, Blanton Collier was the coach. Blanton okay. Collier was Paul Brown's right hand man. He he had taken over, and he was he was coaching the Browns at that time. But um, they were a dominating team. They had been the world champions in '65, um, and then and I'm sorry, in '64, and then. Played for the championship in '65, and they had been really good all those years. But um, nobody remembers, and this is another thing about our sport of football in America. The only thing anybody remembers about the '68 Colts is that we were losers in the Super Bowl three. Nobody, or very few people, you're one of the rare exceptions to remember that that was a great team and we had a bad day. So um, and Joe Joe Namath called a masterful game, and Matt Snell ran the ball really yes, well. Yeah. And, they, and they deserved to win. So uh, you know we didn't like talking about it, and we still don't. But we can well, if you want to. No, 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 sir. I'm. It's just a happy. This is going to be positive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Super Bowl one, and then Super Bowl five. I know Super Bowl five is called the Blunder Bowl, but the fact is, you beat a a a. Pretty good, if not great, Cowboys team that was going to start becoming even better. Stallback yeah. will come on, and, and then they will start building up in the 70s. You beat them, uh, if I remember correctly, by last-second field goal. Correct. And it didn't get, from what I understand, it didn't get the taste of Super Bowl three out of your out of your system. But winning a Super Bowl has to be just a – I mean, you won two has to be just an amazing feeling. Well, it is. Um, 
But that Super Bowl five, for the reason we were so disappointed, and when I say we, I'm mostly talking about the Colt offense because our defense was fantastic that day. I mean, we had the we had one of the great defenses of all time, I think. Yes, you did. Yes. Um, and they won the game. We turned the ball over time after time after time. We thought, okay, we we blew it in Super Bowl three. We're coming back down here. Um, and we're going to make up, we're going to make amends. And, and for some reason, we just tensed up and made one mistake after another and keep putting the, kept putting the defense in the hole, but the defense was up to the task and just stoned a very good Cowboy team and won the game. And our rookie kicker was a really interesting young man named Jimmy O'Brien. And he went up to our our uh, general manager, Ernie Acorsi, the day before the game, um, we we played on almost no uh, AstroTurf fields at that time. We might have played one game in the Astrodome or something, but we had never played on uh, artificial uh, turf in a substantive, in a series of, of times, and nobody was used to the footing. And... Uh, Obi, Jim O'Brien, walks up to Ernie Acorsi, our general manager, the day before the game and said, I sure hope they don't need me tomorrow. And he said, wow, what's your problem? He said, I can't kick off this stuff. I can't. I just can't do it. Well, fortunately, none of us knew that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was this at Tulane? Beg your pardon? Was this at Tulane or was no, this? No, this was in Miami. Miami. Okay. It was down, it was down in the uh, Joe Robbie, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, well, it was called it was the Orange Bowl at that time. Okay, it became Joe Robbie, and then it I, became something else. I didn't realize that that was astroturf, or 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 it was. It was astroturf. That had to be that that had to ruin those knees of yours. Well, something ruined them. <laughs> 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 we also had a a trainer that that set a thermometer on that field one day when we played down there, and it was 138 degrees. Holy cow. That, that'll melt those shoes of yours. Yeah. Well, it, it did. Somebody, some people's shoes had the wrong shoes. Now you, um, today you will find centers, uh, that way up to 280 to 9, What What was your playing weight? I was never over 240. I, I played most of the time, 235. 235. I tried to keep it at 235. Sometimes I finished games under 230. I imagine you did with dehydration. Yeah, dehydration was I, – I drank a lot of water. I, that was on, on the sidelines in the game. that They had begun to use, allow us to do that. So that was a, a saving grace. But Being also the defenses were – the way the defenses lined up, especially in my early years, they lined up in what we call even defenses, meaning that there were two big guys in front of the guards and a middle linebacker lined up three yards off the center, meaning you, I usually didn't have a nose guard or a 300-pound monster in front of them lined up right on me. And that was a, that was allowed me to uh, grow up and develop uh, some techniques and get a little stronger. And until people figured it out, and then about about my fourth year in the league, that we had evolved a bunch of smaller centers. Mick Tinglehoff wasn't very big. Um, Kenny Iman 
with the Rams and Lynn Hoss with the Redskins, we were all 235, 240 pounds. So people started putting people like Joe Green and uh, Deacon Jones on our nose. And that was an entirely different ball game. And that was harder. But by then, uh, we had grown up and we figured out a way to try to get them blocked too. You played, when you played for the, um, well, when you played for the uh, Packers, you you were in the pulling. You pulled a lot with with Jim Taylor and uh, and 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 that type of running game. Is that correct? No, the guards pulled. The guards pulled. The guards pulled all the time. The center never pulled. The only time the center came out was to pick up a blitzing linebacker. So what did you what did you do? Did you just go back and you and you read the defense, or or did you know where they were coming beforehand? I usually knew where they were coming because I could read location stance. After my first year or two, um, I could read. You can read like the color of people's knuckles. Uh, you can read how much weight they have on their fingers to tell if they're coming forward or if they're going to go one side or the other. Uh, you can you can read uh, the depth of the linebackers. You can read the the strong safety, all kind of things as you become veterans. And if you've got a veteran quarterback, and all I had was the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Yes, <laughs> so I had I had guidance from these incredible uh, guys who, who gave me tips and things that they saw. And then there were some wonderful guys that I played with that uh, we would tip each other off about what we were seeing across the line of scrimmage. So we we found ways to get the job done uh, without breaking rules, usually. <laughs> 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 Not grabbing shirts and throwing them down. So, um, what, they, what they get away with now when they put both hands outside the plane of the body and just hold the guy – and they don't get that call. We got we would get that call every single time. So we couldn't do flagrant things. But um, in time, you learn that there's a, a mind game that's every bit as important as the physical game. And, and you play that mind game and you try to outsmart the opponent. And that's really fun. That, that's the fun part of football. And uh, it would have been wonderful to be 290. Uh, but. If I tried to play today, I'd be a water boy. You, uh, I'm just looking right here. The first Super Bowl, the first World Championship game, and I, I've got just a few minutes, and I want you to, but before we end, I want you to kind of give us some advice on. Uh, just, I'll get to it in just a second. You played against a really good Kansas City Chiefs team, and y'all were just that much better. Was and you know, and then year three to me, the most important Super Bowl though was year four, Kansas City versus versus Minnesota. I believe that cemented the AFL to being real. You're but, right, you're right about that. I, I was there as a spectator. I watched where you, where yeah, you? it was, yes, it was. I, I think you're exactly right. It was a, it was a great performance by a, a probably a great team by that time. They had filled in some gaps that that they had, I mean, personnel-wise. They, they had some superior players at, at positions that they where they had been lacking when we played them. 
And they were a lot better by the time of Super Bowl four than they had been in Super Bowl one. Oh, so they, they made some improvements and, and you saw the difference on the playing field. Yes, you, you, and, you could see it. And Minnesota is not a bad team at that time. I think they that was first of, what, four Super Bowls they went to? That's a pretty yeah, good run. Yeah, and, and our Colt team that year, we, we had an off year. We were 8-5-1, and one, but one of those losses, that Minnesota team beat us 59-14 to 14 in Minneapolis. 59-14. So, I mean, to 14. Yeah, it was, it was the worst whipping I ever – participated in uh, in the NFL ever um they just destroyed us they were they were they were really good and um the chiefs made them look like little leaguers yes they did and that just tells you that uh Hank Stram was a was a genius uh for offensive plays definitely he was um he really was he could matriculate on down the field that word matriculate Matriculating the ball down. I love that word. Nobody uses that word. I don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Um, two two things, and I and I'll let you go, Mr. Bill. Thank you for your time today. Uh, I've enjoyed this very much. Um, do you ever wear your your Super Bowl one ring, your World Championship ring? Almost every day. Um, I don't have it on today. I have uh, some circulation issues with my hands. Most NFL linemen have terrible problems with their hands because we just get them all beat up. So this morning, it just wouldn't go on. <laughs> I just well, can, can, can you do me a favor then? Uh, could you send me a picture of that, and I will post that on, on Twitter along with this, along with our interview? I can go get it if you want me to. Well, uh, yeah, I would love take, to. Take love me to about stop. one minute. I'll be right back. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. He's leaving, and I'll tell you this: this is the nerd to me. I have seen Super Bowl one ring in at Canton, but I've never seen one. This is Zoom, so it's really not face to face. But this is about as good as it's going to get for me. Uh, this is awesome. Uh, just keep in mind that when you uh, when you look at these rings compared to what they are now, there's a world of difference. But this is this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. All right. What do we got here, Mr. Bill? How do you want how do you want to do this? Can you uh, just just uh put it up on the screen and I will take a picture of it. Like this? Uh can you get it up a little bit higher so I can get it on the camera? Yeah. Uh, to, up a little bit high. There we go. Perfect. Thank you. That is uh, that is amazing to me. NFL needs to go back to rings like that. What you see today is just a little bit much. It's a lot much. I mean, look at my little hands. I couldn't even put one of those things on. It wouldn't. It would. They're not rings. They're something else. They're just. Uh, it's embarrassing. I don't. I don't. I much prefer this. Well, I've got about two two minutes before I have to let you go, according to Zoom. If you could give us one word of advice, just the listeners, just something that you think is important, what would you what word of advice would you give us? Love one another, regardless of your differences. Be grateful for every day that you're alive and every single minute that your children are alive. God bless you, Jeremy. I sure be praying for you. 
Mr. Bill, you this um I want to let you know when I was told that you we could get a possibility to talk to Bill Curry, I was like, wait a minute. Bill Curry, oh my goodness. It was just an it's an honor for me just to just to talk with you. Not only because of your insights, but just the fact that what you have been through and and I've read by the way, my my son and my daughter were born in Tuscaloosa, roll type. <laughs> wow. You you know about that, don't you? Uh but just talking with you, I do appreciate you coming on the Football's Family Podcast. I do appreciate your time. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.